Welcome, everyone, to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, Neil Pollock, your ambassador of culture, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. We have a fine show for you this week. It's Oscar season, or at least it's the season for Oscar films, for art films to begin to appear on your screens alongside the blockbusters, and we have uh, some commentary on a couple of those films this week. Kenneth Branagh's Belfast and also Spencer, a movie about Princess Diana starring Kristen Stewart, of all people. And we're going to talk to our critics about that. But first, let's talk about books. Let's talk about a book. There's a new novel by Neil Stevenson, the sci-fi writer, the dystopian sci-fi writer, sometimes the utopian sci-fi writer. Book and Film Globe contributor Dan Friedman has read the book and has a review of it up on the site now. And he's going to talk to us about it. But first, let's listen to a little Roy Orbison singing in dreams. We had an article this week about Dean Stockwell, the late Dean Stockwell. Mostly an article about the fabulous clothes he wore in his films, but also an appreciation of his performances and his talent. And he lip syncs famously to this song in David Lynch's Blue Velvet. So here is Roy Orbison, R.I.P. Dean Stockwell. And we'll be right back to talk about Neil Stevenson's Termination Shock. Some authors publish books every year and the publication of a new book by them is not exactly an event. You know, you you don't generally celebrate a new Stephen King because, you know, another one's coming down the pike. Neil Stevenson is a slightly different story. He doesn't publish as often. And when he does publish novels, they're extremely long. And this week there is a new Neil Stevenson book available. Uh, Termination Shock, 720 pages of Neil Stevenson is now out. We have a review of Termination Shock on the site this week uh, by frequent Book and Film Globe contributor Dan Friedman. And Dan is here today to talk to me about uh, Neil Stevenson. Hello, Dan. Hey, Neil. How's it going? I am good. Um, and I am not often confused with Neil Stevenson, but I have had people ask me uh, before if I am Neil Stevenson or Neil Gaiman. And my response is always, unfortunately, no. OK, uh, I'm glad that we, it's good, good to clarify that at the beginning of this, because I had some questions otherwise. Right. You're going to be ta- you're like, I get to talk to the author of the book that I just reviewed. Amazing. All right. So so Termination Shock is is the new Neil Stevenson book. And I would characterize Neil Stevenson. As, you know, he's a science fiction author, speculative fiction author. I, I'd say that's probably correct. And this is the a, a novel about it's a global warming novel, basically. Yeah, it's it's a it's a global warming novel. It's about climate change and um, what a bunch of people governments and uh, private actors might do about it and obviously it's not it, it's not a policy paper so it's not what what might they do about it in a political sense it's an action thriller and so what might they do about it and how might they come together in an exciting way 
But because it's about a whole world of change, it, it really spans from Texas to Indonesia via Holland or the Netherlands, I guess, and has a, a very cool Canadian Punjabi character who heads off to the Himalayas. Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of an amazing scope of novel. I mean, it sounds it sounds very exciting, and I was thinking when I when I was reading your review, I, I haven't read the book yet. It, it, it fits into I would say there's a genre of these sort of speculative fiction novels set in the near future about uh, about climate change and global warming. I mean, Kim Stanley Robinson published something just last year, I believe it was called The Ministry of the Future. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. No, I don't know. What what's interesting is um, that Stevenson's got into this kind of semi-realistic near future novel. So his last book um, was about the, the moon exploding. And in some ways, it's a very similar take on that, which is, you know, what happens if something disastrous happens to the world that we live in? But rather than the moon exploding, which is, um, I think, a relatively unlikely event, um, he's taken this, um, you know, what happens if the climate gets worse, which is an extremely likely event, uh, and and he's chosen to release it also at the, you know, the the week of or the week after the COP26 climate summit. So so yeah, so it, it's not that this genre exists. It's really fascinating that this um, unbelievably detailed and thoughtful author is entering into the genre. Now, you mentioned in your review, man-eating feral hogs, air-conditioned <laughs> air fire ants, and gargantuan meth gators. Now, are these um, results of climate change, or are these uh, sol somehow ingenious uh, human solutions to climate change? Because I feel like it could go either way. They are examples of fauna that has adapted to climate change and <laughs> not in ways that the human civilization is excited about. Um, yeah, and the opening section, you, you get introduced to a whole bunch, of, to two of those three animals, and the opening, I, I don't even know how long it is, is quite an unbelievable tour de force introducing the, um, the meth gators and uh, human-eating feral pigs. Well, I mean, it sounds like a real problem. Especially especially out in Texas, where, where that whole section of the book is set. Um, I think that's, uh, it, you know, the, the fire ants, the meth gators, and the feral hogs. If I knew anyone in, in Texas, I'd be warning them about it. Well, I live in Texas, and that just sounds like a Saturday to me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Sounds, sounds like a regular night out. This just downtown, downtown of the bar. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. It's just after the fo after the football game ends. So, um, <laughs> all right. So you're you're a Neil Stevenson fan. Um, he this this you know this is a writer who has been publishing these massive tomes for thirty years or longer even. How, how does how does this fit in with the, his body of work? So it's it's kind of interesting. He's been writing this extended long worldview that goes on for thousands of years that and that I don't know whether it ended up in reamed R-E-A-M-D-E, but, but certainly that was the, I think that was the latest chronologically of that long cycle. This book, I don't think quite fits in with that. That's, that's I think, what was the interesting thing that this, this is a book about the near future. It's the, the length of it and as I suggested in my review, like actually it could be really much longer 
in a good way, constructively longer. I want to read more about this, the world and what's happening to it. Like he doesn't end neatly on it. And in that way, it really reminds me of um, his Baroque cycle that he wrote um, at the end of the uh, of the orts, which was a, a long uh, a trilogy and, and then reproduced in actually as nine paperbacks because it was that long and detailed about the transformation of uh, European and therefore global culture around the end of the 18th century. And it feels a little bit like that. It feels that scope of things, that this is, you know, the, the moment that we live in or heading straight towards the moment when the Anthropocene, the moment when human uh, evolution is really shaping the Earth on a geological and climate level. And it feels like he's describing that uh, in the way that you know, the Baroque cycle really treated the way that the European and global culture was changing from kind of a feudal to a commercial uh, footing. And, and it's, the scope is, you know, you can make fun of the scope and we really should make fun of the scope because it's kind of bizarrely broad from, you know, China and Russia and uh, and Texas and everything. But but the, it's also really hugely impressive as well. And it feels like that's what someone like Neil Stevenson, who has been writing for so long about so many different uh, aspects of human culture can really bring to to this type of novel. Yeah, you can't say he lacks ambition. He's just one of these mad, <laughs> he's just one of these madman authors who just who just will not relent. It reminds me in some ways of William Bullman. You know, these are not Oprah's book club selections. <laughs> Reese Witherspoon is not going to be recommending these, but you know, he has a, a, a large and loyal fan base uh, of people who will read 720 page novels. About yeah, yeah. I, th I think, I th and I think there's also like it, it, he he is doing what he has suggested some people in his book might do, which is he's sending up a really big provocation about what we need to do to prevent climate change from being massively injurious to the world. And and I think that actually what's interesting is that, that I think you're right. <laughs> I think that, that Oprah's not going to be, you know, using this book except to rest her um, uh, rest her chair on. But I, I'd be, I would be interested. I think that there are a number of climate interested celebs who might be uh, who, who might not read it, but might get an assistant to read it and then talk about it for them. Right. Right. Maybe maybe Leonardo DiCaprio will option. It. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, Termination Shock by Neil Stevenson is available as we speak. Dan Friedman writes about uh, books for us, mostly writes about science fiction uh, and, and books. And uh, that's good because it's uh, always a, a genre that needs to be watched. And Dan, thank you so much. And we will talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Neil. I said earlier, Oscar season is upon us. Not the actual Oscars, but Oscar quality movies are beginning to appear in theaters. Uh, the movies that will be nominated and will be feted. Uh, one of these movies is Kenneth Branagh's Belfast, which is open now. And Stephen Garrett, our lead film critic, is here to talk with me about Belfast. Hello. Hello. All right. So Belfast. Uh, top of the morning to you. Oh, that's that's nice. That's you like nice. that? You sound like, yeah, that's an accent from Darby O'Gill and the Little People. <laughs> it's my reference point, man. Yeah, Better than Lucky Charms. <laughs> yeah, way to go, Stephen. Get my pot of gold.
All right. Well, Belfast is not by someone who parodies Irishmen. It's by an actual guy from Ireland, Kenneth Branagh. Uh, it's like a black and white movie that remembers the sort of a halcyon black and white days of the 1960s, late 1960s, early 70s in, in Northern Ireland. Yeah, I mean, Halcyon uh, through a boy's eyes when you live in a more or less stable home full of loving people, uh, things are sweet and, and seem normal and you're insulated as we all are from the reality of the world and how ugly and violent it can be. And that's punctured when the troubles start, you know, the, the sectarian violence that was happening in Northern Ireland in Belfast. Right. And and so uh, the family gets caught up in the politics of the time, the or, this ordinary middle class family. Well, you know, yes and no. I don't know. I was expecting to be a lot more political than it was, but it, it kind of elides the issue. And I think it uses the child's eye point of view as an excuse not to get too in the thick of the specifics of what that actually meant. So it's very black and white. You know, the Protestants are horrible. And, and Kenneth Branagh's family here in his autofiction are Protestants, but it's the unreasonable Protestants that are beating up on the poor Catholics. I don't know really very much at all about the troubles, aside from that they cause a lot of trouble, apparently. And maybe that's for the best, that this movie is basically saying, look, it's not really about what those troubles are. It's just the fact that they existed and they caused a rupture that, you know, shook up this family and made them actually ultimately move out of Belfast and move to London. Now, um, the troubles are in the past, right? Ireland is a united country again, and um, in Belfast, you can travel between Dublin and Belfast without uh, passing through military checkpoints and all that. And so you're starting to see this, this burgeoning, I would say it's a genre, but you're starting to see fiction about the times because it is now the past. You have you have Belfast, which has been widely praised. And then you have uh, the Netflix show Dairy Girls, which I love, uh, which is, you know, a kind of a wacky sitcom about a bunch of um, Catholic like schoolgirls who uh, get into all kinds of trouble, and then sometimes, <laughs> and sometimes the troubles get in the way of their trouble. Belfast is, um, you know, it's, it's an art film, right? This is in, this thing is mostly in black and white. Uh, it, you know, I'm, I'm sure it contains lots of nostalgic music. Two things that I found kind of interesting. I, I first of all, I found it painfully arty in a way that was very self conscious and a, and a bit distracting. It's black and whiteness is very. Uh, deliberate and very, I don't know, unnecessarily austere. Uh, you know, life wasn't black and white in 1969. They, you see them watch color movies and the movies are in color in the, this black and white film, which seems I, like an artistic license that didn't need to be taken. So there's that. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting the way that the troubles are, are portrayed in here. Uh, this story could have been told without the troubles um, in that the real conflicts are the boys struggle with his ambivalence about religion and how overbearing it can be. The fact that his father, who's Janie Dornan, hasn't paid his taxes and has to, he owes three years of back taxes. So the family's constantly in debt. And Katrina Belf, the, the mom, is kind of long suffering and is a little unstable because of not unstable mentally, but, you know, their household is a little unstable just because the finances are so wobbly. And then you've got his parents uh, and the the grandfather played by uh, Kieran Hines, who's fantastic and is a lock to win all the Oscars or all the, all the, all the awards I'm sure for supporting actor. And he is, he's the elder statesman of the family who was a coal miner back in back in the day and has black lung because of it. And, you know, his days are numbered and he's going to end up in a hospital. So, you know, there are I I guess there are issues that uh, 
Buddy, who is the avatar for Kenneth Branagh, uh, he's the nine-year-old boy, um, is is hitting as we all do as we grow. Uh, that we realize that our parents have flaws. We realize that our grandparents are not immortal. We're going to have to encounter death. We're going to have to encounter strife. Now, laid over that are the troubles, and that I think is an engine for the story in that you know that's the reason they're going to leave Belfast at a certain point. But so much of what happens in it, the little drama, the, is very relatable and very human and very much just a part of the human experience. All right. So a couple of comparison films here, and then I want to talk about Kenneth Branagh as a director. Um, Roma, which won the Oscar uh, a few years ago, I believe. Did it win the Oscar or was it nominated? I actually don't remember. I think it won. Roma won Best Foreign Four. Language Film and Best Director and Best uh, Cinematography, I think. Right. It was a favorite. It was a possible winner of the Oscar. But, you know, that was another sort of boyhood memory, black and white film. That one was set in Mexico. And then also I, I was thinking John Borman's Hope and Glory, which is yeah. one, of my, my, one of my favorite films, which is about, a, you know, obviously that one was a little more connected to the actual to World War Two itself because this, the London neighborhood was constantly being bombed. Right. Right. But a similar vibe, you know, of like ordinary people getting through tough times politically um, any way they can with some humor. That's it. That that life finds a way regardless of what's happening uh, that could be destructive or existential or, you know, any of those things. So you, you, people are still going to laugh. They're still going to cry. They're still going to have childhood crushes. They're still going to have issues with their siblings and their parents, you know, and that's very much of this. And it's it's a really uh, effective film. I, I you know, was, was a little skeptical. It had gotten a lot of buzz and I didn't really understand why or why this would be compelling. And I was not expecting it to be uh, as much about just the human drama and less about the troubles. I thought the troubles would be interwoven and it's sprinkled in there. Um, it's certainly, you know, there are moments where it pops up, but so much of the story is just about Buddy and the way that he's experiencing life. And that right. is so rich and really wonderfully evoked by Kenneth Branagh. If you want to see a movie about the troubles, go back and watch The Crying Game or In the Name of the Father, or Michael Collins. Right. Or, the, or Hunger. Yes. Those classic movies about people starving and 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 killing each other. This is not that movie. Now, Kenneth Branagh as a director, you know, I think it's very interesting. You know, in the in recent vintage Kenneth Branagh, it's been a lot of schlock, right? He made the he's made the Agatha Christie movies, he made Thor. That's kind of how modern audiences know him know him. But his first film was Henry V, which I was still is probably my one of my two or three favorite uh, Shakespeare film adaptations. Wonderfully effective um, version of a could be a very boring play. And then also then he made um, this kind of Hitchcocky thriller comedy called Dead Again with Ed, Emma Thompson. That I also really liked, you know, that was sort of the height of Branagh and, and, and Thompson as uh, everyone's artsy romantic couple that everyone loved. Right. And then he moved into sort of very mainstream, uh, commercially successful schlock. And this is like a return to, you know, artistness for him. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, he was kind of compared to Olivier when Henry the Henry five came out and like there had never been such a young director of him. And is he going to be the next Orson Welles? And like, what's ahead of him? And he, he's a, he's a quadruple threat. You know, he can write and act and dance and sing and like all, whatever, you know, he could do no wrong. And, you know, and he put out an autobiography when he was 30, you know, I, he was just like very hot stuff. And that didn't really bear out quite that spectacularly, but 
he's had a, a very consistently successful career in Hollywood as an actor, as a, as you know, he writes screenplays and he produces and directs. And I think he's stayed in the game. I, I you know, he's not a spectacular auteur, but he is a very smart, agreeable craftsman of popcorn pictures, you know. And, you know, you say schlock and, and I think it just depends uh, how you receive the, the films. Maybe they're a little generic or maybe they're not quite as idiosyncratic as, you know, like uh, Taika Waititi or whatever. But, you know, he's kind of airs on the side of highbrow. You know, he's done five Shakespeare movies. He's done The Magic Flute. He's done a remake of Sleuth. He's done Cinderella. He's done, like you said, Murdered on the Orient Express. And he's got another Agatha Christie movie coming out, which are kind of highbrow, middlebrow, right? They're, they're smart. They're, they're, they're PBS movies. Well, you know, it's just funny. Like he was being Olivier as an actor, but it is Orson, Orson Welles. You know, he's now 60 plus, Brad is. And he, by the time Orson Welles was 60 plus, he was weighed 600 pounds and was doing wine commercials and, and narrating <laughs> narrating the late great planet earth and you know and and the transformers cartoon so i would say that this this is not a, a sad landing for uh, the young genius kenneth Branagh, who was like in his 20s when henry v came out right right you know and now and now you're looking at very possibly oscar-winning director kenneth Branagh. i mean belfast is is getting i mean who knows anything could change between now and whenever the the oscar ceremony is but it feels like it feels like there's there's a little bit of momentum for him here not like i care right it, it's still worth mentioning no, I, you know, it's a very strong entry, and I think what's interesting, I, it's almost quizzical why it's directed with such this kind of overtly artistic style, you know, like, let's make it black and white, let's have this really vivid cinematography, let's let's really sweat the way that each shot is framed, you know, so that you really, it's, it's kind of over-considered. Um, I was not a fan of Roma, and I feel like that artistry came a little more naturally, uh, despite the fact that it was so expressionistic in the way it was shot and how it was shot. But I think Alfonso Cuaron has more of a natural cinematic style when he makes movies. And Kenneth Branagh, I think, is just a creature of the stage. He's much more in love with the word. He's much more in love with performances. And that, I think, is the real uh, joy in this film. And that's where it seems effortless and also so polished in the sense that this is somebody who's done this so many times that he's just really good at it. Stephen, thank you so much. That is uh, Belfast, directed by Kenneth Branagh, and now available in theaters and uh, maybe on streaming. I don't know exactly. You never know how movies are being distributed these days. Worth seeing. Worth seeing in theater. Also, it's short, 97 minutes. That's like a third of the length of Eternals. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, good enough. Stephen, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, thanks, Ben. So if you were to ask who would be the ideal person to play Lady Diana in a biopic, Kristen Stewart would probably not be the first person who comes to mind. And yet, Kristen Stewart is playing Princess Diana herself in a new movie called Spencer that is out in theaters now. And Book and Film Globe film critic Rotten Tomatoes approved film critic Sarah Stewart is here to talk to me about Kristen Stewart in Spencer. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Hey, so I say Kristen Stewart and Spencer because this is her movie almost completely. I mean, there are other actors and other characters in it, but I mean, I, I've rarely seen one performer dominate a movie as much as this one. 
Right. It is very much her movie. It's sort of, she kind of just walks through this uh, idea of a weekend in the life of, of Princess Diana in a way that very much uh, suits Kristen Stewart's strengths, I think. She is sort of at her best when the camera kind of follows her around and lets her do her own thing and kind of lets her lean into her emotions, which she tends to wear on her face very openly. And um, and yeah, I think she she really does a, does a fantastic job in this role, surprisingly. Yeah, I, I watched this movie, well, as we're talking, I watched this movie last night, and I've got to say, she's extraordinary in this role. I mean, she was absolutely riveting. I mean, she, she you're right, she she has an incredible range of emotions, and she just, she looks fantastic. And, and the one thing I'll say is, one thing I really noticed was her physicality. It was amazing the way she walks. I don't know if she watched video of, of Lady Diana walking or if this just kind of her own interpretation, but it's just incredibly idiosyncratic, super physical performance. You know, I haven't seen anything like it in a long time. It's really interesting. And it does seem like, you know, from what I've read, she certainly did her research and she, you know, had a an accent coach and she, I think, did watch videos. But it also is so interesting. And I think what what makes this more engaging than a lot of kind of navel gazing royals things that we've uh, had on the entertainment landscape is that it's it's kind of this this very subjective idea of what princess diana is what she meant to us what we sort of think she went through and and it, it lets it be a very different experience of what this modern woman you know despite coming from the aristocracy despite being very much upper class uh what this relatively modern woman experienced in this group of just, you know, as they're depicted here, just these horrendous backwards uh, monarchists sort of tormenting her kind of gleefully throughout this film. I mean, it's it's very much a horror film. Yeah, I agree. It does have the air of a horror film down to the tinkly piano music that never stops playing. And as you point out, this is not The Crown. The Crown is, a, is I can see why people like it. It's very lavishly made, you know, but it's not a critique of the royal family. It's very empathetic toward them in a lot of ways. And Spencer does not take to the Windsors kindly, let, let us say. No, I mean, and it picks out these wonderful details. I mean, I don't know, you know, how accurate this is, but one of the things that happens initially to her is that she, uh, she has to be weighed when she comes in because the family does this for a bit of fun. They weigh everybody at the beginning and the end of the weekend to make sure they've all put on a few pounds with all the holiday, uh, festive holiday meals. And to do this to a woman who's very publicly known to have an eating disorder is just a, the height of cruelty. Well, they're always monitoring her, too. Like when she's up chucking in the bathroom, there's always someone on the other side of the door saying, are you feeling OK? Right. Yeah. It's creepy. And and yet, you know, the movie also has a tender side, like the scenes of her with her young sons there. I'd say they're 10 and 12 or 8 and 11, something like that. I don't know exactly the ages, but they're not babies. Uh, you know, the, the, the scenes she has with them are, are, I thought, I think, very effective and very moving and, and feel very real. And and they really get at this what one imagines she probably would have felt, which is that she, you know, they they clearly adored her. I mean, we know that they did. And she is trying to keep them in kind of a normal relationship with her at, at the same time as they are being pulled by the royal family into kind of assuming their roles as the princes and being, you know, trained by their dad to go hunting, even though none of them really seem interested in that at all. 
And it's just, it really is heartbreaking. And, and her scene with them late at night, um, you know, just stolen minutes where she can actually hang out with them is just so beautifully done, I think, and really memorable. I would say this movie's not for everyone. I mean, if you're looking for, you know, something uh, lush and relaxing and fun, you know, a, a sort of a standard Helen Mirren is the queen biopic or something like The Crown, it's not for you. I mean, this is Pablo Lorraine is the name of the director. He also made Jackie, which was a similar take on Jackie Kennedy Onassis. Uh, Natalie Portman played her in that. But you know, it was like a it's got a little bit of an avant garde vibe to it. So be forewarned before you go in. You're not you're not in for a straight narrative. Yes, yes, for sure. I And I also I really appreciate about this that it kind of seems to be getting um, the kind of acclaim for Kristen Stewart that she maybe has never had before, even though she's given a, a number of really terrific performances throughout her career, including in Personal Shopper and The Clouds of Sils Maria. Um, but, you know, as as somebody who goes back to the twilight days of being a Kristen Stewart fan, I'm just really pleased to see that she's finally getting um, the kind of accolades for her uh, acting chops that I think she's always deserved. Right. Well, the Twilight movies were, I mean, obviously they're beloved by many people, but, you know, let's face it, they're, you know, teen vampire and werewolf fantasies. So they're not going to be for everyone. So it's easy to mock Kristen Stewart. You know, her character, Bella, had such a bland affect to. True. To, but you take her and Robert Pattinson, two very idiosyncratic, sort of eccentric performers, you know, at the beginning of their careers in this, you know, as you said, this kind of dumb vampire series. It's kind of delightful to watch what they do at the parts in the middle of, you know, this Mormon written hilarious vampire story. Right. So I, I've always seen, you know, good things, great things for her. And, and I can't imagine she's not going to get at least an Oscar nomination for this. The leads from Twilight are now uh, Lady Diana and Batman. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Ironies never never end in Hollywood. Yeah, well, an Oscar nomination is is certainly coming her way. And you even mentioned in your review the possibility of seeing Kristen Stewart Oscar winner, which would be the craziest thing since Matthew McConaughey Oscar winner, right? <laughs> Let's hope. Yeah, you're rooting for, and you know, and I, I don't think Spencer the movie it could get an Oscar nomination. It's a little small and obscure, but uh, you know, I'm sure it's going to get some consideration as well. Absolutely, and and this has such a, been such a strange year for movies. You know, as we talked about, I think last time this kind of glut of movies that have been on the shelf, and you know, so, so I think everything is maybe more up for grabs this awards season than it has been in, in a lot of years past. Well, Kristen Stewart is Lady Diana in Spencer, and this thing was actually available in Austin, where I live. I can, you can see it at the Austin Film Society. You can see it at the Alamo Draft House. I saw it at the at the Art House down the street. So it's out there for you Art House people if you want to see it. And uh, Sarah's review is up on Book and Film Globe now. Sarah, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. And it seems to me you lived your life like a candle in the wind. Never fading with the sunset When the rain set in And your footsteps will always fall here Along England's greenest hills Your candles burned out long before All right, thanks, Sarah Stewart, for talking to me about Spencer, starring Kristen Stewart, out in theaters now, also out in theaters now, Belfast, directed by Kenneth Branagh, Stephen Garrett popped in to talk about that, thanks to him, and thanks to Dan Friedman for discussing Neil Stevenson's Termination Shock with me. We're going to close this week with 
Candle in the Wind from Elton John, his song that was initially about someone else, but then became about Princess Diana. It was schlocky when it came out and annoying. It's still a little annoying, but it seems appropriate. I'm Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Thanks so much for reading the site. Thanks so much for listening to the show. R.I.P. Dean Stockwell. R.I.P. Princess Diana. We will talk to you next week. And it seems to me You've lived your life Like a candle in the wind Never fading with the sunset When the rain set in And your footsteps will always fall